This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing, Monica? Pretty good, just hanging out with the family, you know. Yeah? Maybe some fireside cooking and... Maybe some target practice with your new machine gun? Oh, you know, actually, I think that's coming up. Oh, as always, listeners can subscribe to us on iTunes and email us at cinemafix at filmgeekcredit.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. We'd love to hear from you. This is part two of episode number 80 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Go away. Go listen to part one. That's where we don't spoil everything for you. Uh, if this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, basically how it works is each episode is divided up into two parts. The first part is when we give our general spoiler-free thoughts on whatever movie we're discussing that week. And the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one, or at least after you've seen the film. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening now and go check out part one of this episode. I am privileged to introduce a very special guest. He is a freelance writer, and you can find his work in places like Edge Boston and Movie Mezzanine. He's also co-hosted several Film Geek Radio podcasts with me, including our new show, The Tupperware Party, which is all about the HBO series The Leftovers. Charlie Nash, welcome back to Cinema Fix. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, if you're listening, then I'm just going to assume you've already seen the film, so there's no need to give a synopsis. So let's just dive right into it. Here's a clip. You know the scary thing about them? They don't need power. Lights. Heat. Nothing. Hey, pal. That's the advantage. That's what makes them stronger. Well, I'm thinking one of us should stay on guard tonight. Wait, what? They took our guns. If we wanted us dead, we'd be dead already. They're really just taking their time. They already killed off half the planet already. Come on. What? You can't honestly blame the apes. Who the hell else am I going to blame? It was a simian flu. It was a virus created by scientists in a lab. The chimps they were testing on didn't really have a say in the matter. Spare me the hippie-dippy people. You're telling me you don't get sick to your stomach at the side of them? Huh? All right. Well, uh, Charlie, I'm going to start with you. Of course, we feel free to talk about whatever spoilers you would like in this conversation. But uh, why don't you kick things off for us? What did you think of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Well, I grew up with the original series when I was young. I think I saw the first film, the first 1968 Planet of the Apes when I was 10. And I saw every film in the original series apart from the last installment, which was Battle of the Planet of the Apes. So I was a pretty big fan as a kid. And I thought that Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the previous installment, was surprisingly solid, despite the fact that we all thought it was going to suck when we first heard about it. And by we, I just mean me. As a fan of the original films, I didn't think it was going to be that good. And I was pleasantly surprised. And this film, I really loved Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I think that it's uh, probably the best blockbuster of the summer, not including Snowpiercer, but that's a whole nother story. I think that it's very emotionally complex. I think it's got a heart and a lot of ideas going on apart from the action. I think that it's Beautifully directed by Matt Reeves, who also did uh, Cloverfield and Let Me In, which was another, which were two other films that I enjoyed. Uh, Let Me In in particular was a film I bashed before it was even released because it's a remake of Let the Right One In, which is uh, one of my favorite films of the past few years. And I thought that anyone doing an American remake would screw that up. But Matt Reeves proved that he has his own style and voice as an American filmmaker and made a really solid adaptation of it, even if it didn't quite match the original in quality. I thought that was great. I 
think that this film even surpasses Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I think it's a really, really well-made blockbuster. I think it's extremely entertaining. It's got great character arcs, a lot of liberal politics involving gun control, which I am totally in favor of. And I think that it's just exceptionally well-made. So... Yeah, I was. Uh, I'm. I really dug it. I'm a big fan. Okay, I, I'm gonna agree with most of what you said, Charlie. I do think it is a well-crafted film. I am going to disagree with you and the idea that it's emotionally complex or in any way morally or or uh, cinematically complex. I really don't think it's that profound of a of a movie. Um, and I was telling Monica in part one, I feel like. It's the type of movie that it's well-crafted enough that we can tell it has ideas, and that's more than a lot of summer blockbusters have, so I feel like that's why it does stand out a little bit, but at the same time, I don't think it does anything particularly interesting with those ideas a lot of the time. I want to ask you guys, what did you th- what, what do you think of this whole uh, performance capture technology? And how it was used in this film. Because, of course, uh, Caesar is played by Andy Serkis, who's well known for his motion capture uh, performances, including Gollum and, and King Kong, and now Caesar. What do you think of how this technology is now being used, Monica? Mm. Well, I think it's certainly gotten a lot better than the uh, Robert Zemeckis era of like the Polar Express, <laughs> where, it was, where it was much creepier. Oh, sure. I think, I mean, Andy Serkis kind of cornered the market on this, so, because he, he uses his whole body in telling this character's story. So I think, in this sense, I don't have a problem with it. Um, I don't know. I The practical effects are great and, and such. Like, I just re- actually, the same day that I saw Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey right before it, and they have that beginning sequence with the, uh, the Dawn of Man or so, and they have the people in ape costumes trying to mimic that movement and you can tell like it's it's obviously not very convincing so when you're trying to sell this idea of these are actually chimpanzees their whole body structure is different so you're able to carry that a little bit more with the computer uh graphics than you would and you know a person in a monkey suit what do you think charlie I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I think that Andy Serkis uh, in particular gives, well, all the apes in particular give great performances because I agree with Monica. Uh, I didn't see Polar Express, but I saw Beowulf and it was impressive, but it never looked fully convincing. And it was this weird uh, world. It, it was like in between animation and live action in a weird, creepy way, but they didn't get certain details right. Like they looked... That their eyes in particular, they just looked hollow and dead inside. I know that's incredibly morbid, but I feel like here it's a lot more... Andy Serkis's performance is a lot of showing, not telling. I mean, he expresses emotions through body language so much more than dialogue, and that's part of why I like this film so much, is I think that the apes are much more fully realized characters and are the flesh and blood of this film, as opposed to the humans, who I uh, will admit are kind of bland, despite the fact that I love the actors portraying them. I think that it's a pretty amazing achievement that we've gone in a matter of what Beowulf was, what, 2007, 2006? Like, what? so it's been like, what, uh, seven or eight years since, you know, then, and we've really come so far. And I also love the fact that it's mostly set in actual locations. It wasn't all in a green screen, much like the first film, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and the fact that he used motion capture against actual backdrops and settings, I think, made it all the more effective is that, you know, they're actual locations with the CGI creations uh, integrated into them, and it makes it look all all the more authentic. I agree with you. I I have kind of mixed feelings, and I'm kind of unsure how to feel about this uh, this performance uh, captured technology. Uh, on the one hand, you're right. There's often some pretty seamless integration between these uh, CGI creations and, and these uh, actors having their uh, movements, performance captured, and the, uh, the physical location. On the other hand, I still think it is obviously CGI, especially in close-ups. You can tell they, they haven't quite yet managed to cross that uncanny valley. And I think as a result, 
visually, I found myself frequently just kind of jarred out of the film. Like, there, there would be certain scenes with a lot of wide shots where it all kind of seamlessly meshed together, and I was fully believing what my eyes were seeing. And then there would be other scenes with a lot of close-ups where it was just so obviously still a CGI creation. And I'm not sure if that's just the fact that the technology isn't there yet or if it's just my brain just knowing subconsciously this can't be real. Well, I mean, technically, I think a lot, like, even certain movements that the apes do like ride a horse and things like that i don't know if they could actually stand or like sit up up so upright whether or not their backbones would let them do that so like technically biologically speaking i'm not sure if everything they do is correct so like that w- that was something that was throwing me off that's a lot more closer than again if it was a guy in a monkey suit i also think that like in comparison to certain films it i i I understand what you're saying andrew but i feel like there have been so many worse versions of this that when it's done so well as i think it's done here it doesn't bother me like i i'm not sure if this was the same technology but remember i don't know if you guys have seen tron legacy but the cgi jeff bridges in that was just an (laughs) abomination (laughs) and it was like why don't you just use jeff bridges to begin with but anyway that's beside the point that was weird it was i think it was like a younger jeff bridges right yeah or they they smoothed him out Exactly. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, that's basically all I remember about that movie is how horrific that one special effect was, regardless of the fact that all those other special effects were great. So I guess it didn't bother me as much. But well, I I mean, you're right that it is better than uh, in a lot of films. But at the same time, is it a great leap forward? I'm I'm not really sure. And I'm I'm not sure how all of this CGI is going to hold up in, in 10 or 20 years, you know, and I was trying to think back about, okay, well, how did the old practical man in suit effects hold up in Planet of the Apes in, in the original? And yeah, it's really cheesy. And I'm sure if I rewatched it today, it might not hold up as much. But there's still something about seeing physical beings, physical people there that I think is important. And, as, and I know, I remember as a child, you don't care how goofy the masks are. You believe it. And I, I don't know, I've, I've just been tr- thinking a lot about uh, the nature and the evolution of all these digital effects and trying to think, okay, well, when I think about timeless digital effects, what do I think of? And it's always either practical effects or a mix of practical and CGI. Like, if I had to list the top three digital effects movies, I would say uh, Jurassic Park, Terminator to Judgment Day and The Fountain are, in my opinion, probably <laughs> have the best special of effects of any films I've ever seen. <laughs> I love the fact that you mentioned The of Fountain. Of course. But, you know, even, and I agree of with course. you, Andrew, that those three films are great, but, like, you know, even Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park, as much as I love those films, they're some of my favorite films. Uh, Terminator 2 in particular, like, the liquid metal was groundbreaking in the day, but it does look a little dated. I mean, it's 20 years old. Maybe a tiny bit in a few shots, but I, ac- I actually just rewatched Terminator 2 a couple months ago, and and those effects, by and large, still hold up. Oh, they're great. The same is true of Jurassic Park. I remember going to see Jurassic Park when they re-released it in IMAX and was still just blown away by, by the technology on display. And I'm not sure that this performance capture technology is going to be the same way. Is the earliest iteration of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that's what, 2002? That's when we first see Gollum, right? Right, and Gollum still does look pretty great, how's he? How's he looking at? He's, he still looks pretty good. Did you have these complaints about the first film, or um, for that matter, Peter Jackson's King Kong, which was also played by Andy Serkis, I believe? I mean, to a, to a certain extent, I'm not quite up with the uh, specifics, but from what little I've heard, I get the impression that the technology used in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is a little bit different from the technology they used in Lord of the Rings and probably King Kong. Like, it's an, it's an upgrade or it's an update somehow. Like, now they call it performance capture as opposed to motion capture, and I don't really know what the details are and what the difference is. What? You don't know how this works? <laughs> you don't know how to just plug and play, man? Well, it's funny. I just find it to be funny that you're critical of this film, Andrew, and not the because uh, the first film, I feel like it looked good. But I think this is a massive improvement in terms of the motion capture performances and in regards to the first film, which the first film looked fine. But I think that here it's even more detailed and crisp. I think it's when you get into the mask 
crowds of apes that the animation starts to look a little choppy because there's so many individual details that they have to go over that I feel some of the quality is sacrificed. I would actually disagree with you. I think that actually the wide shots and the shots with a lot of apes, I think those are really, really impressive uh, because there's so much to look at that you don't really have time to focus on the specific details. And so I think that they visually they tend to they tend to blend more seamlessly. It's this one-on-one scenes between apes and the close-ups that I had the most issue with because there was still that slight hint of yes, this is CGI. And uh, and I'm not trying to sound too critical. I agree that it's a really really uh, incredible achievement technically. I'm just saying I don't think that this is going to I don't think this is the type of technology that's going to hold up. And I'm also thinking about it in terms of the themes of the movie to a certain extent because one of the things I do like about this film is how it opens and begins with the shot of uh, just Caesar's eyes. And I think that that's a really, really perfect shot for this film because it gets at all of the, uh, the themes that the film is trying to explore about. Well, what is the difference between man and ape? Do these apes have a soul? And as, we, as, you know, as the common expression goes, the eyes are the gateway to the soul. And at the same time, the eyes, they're often where most of the criticism towards these motion capture performances go. Like as you mentioned, Charlie, a lot of times the eyes tend to look a little bit hollow and a little bit dead somehow. And by opening with the eyes here, Matt Reeves... Is, is serving the story thematically, and he's also making a statement about the technology, saying, we've crossed it. We have crossed the uncanny valley. I'm going to open with a close-up on these eyes so you can see we have finally captured real humanity here. And you said this movie wasn't deep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, like, I do think that this movie has some ideas. I don't think it really fully capitalizes on those ideas. But I do think that when it comes to specific shots, like this opening and closing shot, I think that's a really, really decisive, bold move. When it comes to this whole idea, though, that we've crossed the uncanny valley, uh, and, and now there really is no difference between digital apes and humans, both thematically and cinematically, I'm not sure I'm quite there yet, is, is all I'm saying. I appreciate the attempt. <laughs> But it, uh, I'm not I'll go out on a limb right. and say that out of most movies I've seen this summer, I cared about these apes and believed them more than I believed about a lot of human characters in uh, a lot of <laughs> movies this summer. I mean, like, I just saw Paul Haggis's new film, Third Person, where it was just this ensemble of love and the pains of being human, and I didn't buy any of it, and I got totally wrapped up in this film. I even got teary-eyed at some parts of this movie, which I know is going to sound ridiculous, but this film really has a heart. I mean... Yeah, I bought the drama. You know, what I love about this film is that I know it's advertised with the apes on horseback with machine guns and the action sequences, but what I loved about this film is that we don't want the humans or the apes to be violent, and by the time it happens at the end, I was amazed by how much I didn't want an action sequence and how I was dreading it and how I just wanted peace. Uh, if it was just a full-on drama, I would have been fine with that. And the fact that, you know, the action is amazingly done, but I was really emotionally invested in the lives of these characters. Even the humans who aren't as fleshed out as the apes, I feel like, aren't black and white. Even Gary Oldman has a soul, and you, you get from this scene with him and his iPad that he is broken and he's lost his family even certain characters that are more uh caricatures like the guy with who is just a jerk and keeps reaching for the gun and then they banish him to the car you can still you know you don't like the them but you understand where they're coming from and that's what i liked about this film and i feel like other blockbusters like the new x-men film which was fine uh, tackled certain themes in, in a similar way, but I don't think it's as rich or as compelling as these films. And even the uh, close-ups of the apes, Andrew, when they're just having conversations, those are actually some of my favorite parts of the film. Because yeah. I feel like the, uh, the, it, it was just so compelling to watch. And I, I will go on the record saying I think these special effects are fantastic and it never took me out of the picture. I mean, I'm, I'm going to agree with you to a certain extent, Charlie, I did like a lot of those scenes, even though visually I was still taken out of the of the movie a bit by the uh, by the CGI. I do appreciate the fact that this movie does have so many quiet moments and how and, and so many quiet scenes just between two or three characters, uh, whether it's uh, Caesar and and Koba or Caesar and his son, 
or uh, or Jason Clark and his wife or or, or she and uh, her stepson. I, I like there. I, I like that the movie has these quiet moments. My problem was I never felt like those moments quite came together into a a satisfying arc for many of these characters. I feel like everything with Caesar's son was really uh, kind of messy. I feel like Gary Oldman is really not a character. Actually, Gary Oldman, you know when Gary Oldman becomes a character? He becomes a character with his last line, (laughs) which really uh, struck me and made me realize how much of a non-character he had been until that point. So so the last scene, up until this point, Gary Oldman's just been the obligatory bad guy who wants to go to, to war for some reason. Uh, I, I never quite bought his motivations for, for wanting to go to war. Uh, but here at the, at the end, he's lines the uh, tower with C4, and as he blows it up, his last line is, I'm saving the human race. And he says it with such pride and i found myself thinking whoa 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 this feels like a completely different character the guy that cried over the ipad pictures of his family and over humanity i don't think would kill himself or would blow everybody up at the same time though this guy that would blow everybody up that views himself as a hero as this guy who is going to save all of mankind and has kind of these delusions of grandeur, that's interesting. I wish we had gotten more of that earlier in the film, just that side of his character. So I just felt like so many of the characters in this movie, it it felt like the film was going through the motions and was about to touch on some good ideas and some good development and then just never quite did. See, I bought that storyline because you see earlier that he lost everything. Everyone he knew and loved died. So now Mm -hmm. he's going to stop it at any price. Yeah, and I feel like... I guess. I feel like he didn't initiate the war. I mean, like, I feel like at the beginning of the film, I was thinking, oh, well, Gary Oldman's going to be this bad guy who just, regardless of what happens, is going to lead people into war. And I was actually surprised that it was Koba. I mean, it was either going to be one of those two people, but I thought from the way they were setting Gary Oldman up, he would want to go to war. But as soon as they get the power back, he doesn't seem to want to just go to war anymore. They're attacked and he takes defense. I don't think that he's as big of a caricature as it sounds like you perceived him as. I agree to a, a certain extent. I can see what you're saying. And I I will say that that was one area in which I was surprised by the second act of the film and that you're right, it's not the humans that start things, it's the apes. It's actually something that I really liked this time. Mm-hmm, I the agree. The fault is on both sides. Yeah, because the first film, you're right, Monica, the first film it was... Basically, apes good, humans bad, and that's what I like so much about this film is that there was a. That's why I think it's emotionally complex. They're both I feel alike like, because yes, they both kind of could be evil. Exactly. That's what I liked. Is the first film was all about how apes and humans are different, and the second film seems to be all about how apes and humans are very similar in a lot of ways, and that's what I loved about this film so much. I think that that is the one theme that the film does manage to explore very well. That that is the one idea that is communicated in a, in a very satisfactory way, at least for me, from the opening shot to the very end. And the, just the constant cutting back between the apes and the humans where you'll have a scene between Caesar and his son and then you'll have a scene between Jason Clark and his son. There's very intentional parallel being drawn. I do think that that was communicated effectively. But honestly, though, for me, the best part of the film was that opening scene. I think the the opening 15 to 20 minutes are pretty incredible in that it's it's all apes for about 20 minutes, no actual dialogue. It's it's all sign language and the the everything with the opening hunt I thought was fantastic and that right away communicates everything you need to know about the main idea of the film where we within the 10 years between Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the apes have started hunting other animals, and now they view other animals as inferior and and, and have become carnivorous. That, That sums up the whole movie right there, the fact that now they're hunting. Be honest, though, you really dug the scene where Koba's on a horse packing a gun on each hand and charging. Because if you don't burst out laughing, you ain't watching. I thought that that... Again, 
that's such a I that okay. Let's talk about that moment, Monica, because the film is so serious mm-hmm. in tone, and yet at the same time, as you said, these are apes on horseback with machine guns. This is the stuff of midnight movies. It's perfect. <laughs> I, well, I agree, and I feel like in that final battle, it never quite found the right tone between being really serious and being just kind of pulpy fun. I think the original films were pulpy fun, and yet they also had ideas behind them. And yes, there is there's this great personal story behind them too. I don't see why you you can't have it all. No, but what I'm trying to say is for 90% of its runtime, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is not pulpy. It is trying to be very very serious. It's not the goofy costumes. Again, it's it's the it's the performance capture CGI. It's making a statement. Yes, we cross the Uncanny Valley. Take us seriously. We're going to have these really emotional moments with these uh, c- with these CG characters. The whole movie is very bleak in tone, a lot sure. most of the time. Then when you have a moment like the uh, the apes on horseback with machine guns, it was really weird because I'm like. Am I supposed to be frightened by this? Am I supposed to be thinking about the fact that now apes have guns and that's thematically relevant? Am I supposed to be having fun because it's an ape on a horseback with machine guns? I don't know. I felt like the the battle scene at the very end was really just tonally kind of... You didn't think that shot with the ape on top of the tank and it was rotating that's around a in a single shot. shot showing all the chaos? Yes, I loved that. That was a fantastic shot. But my, my point is, for, for every, like, really well-thought-out and well-crafted, serious shot, like, that shot was chaotic, it was spinning, it, you, there were explosions, it was chaotic, it felt like, man, this is a really... The final fight scene is on top of a tower, apes hanging off of uh, chain links. Yeah, it, it felt like know. this is a really serious, crazy battle scene. Like, I... Like, honestly, it wasn't a fun battle scene. It felt like a war, like an actual war scene. And that's what I liked about it. It had a lot of gravitas to it. I, well, I liked that too. But then you have the shot of the apes on horseback with machine guns, and suddenly I'm 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 go- I'm out of that mood. I know that maybe I'm about to get like maybe I'm taking this a little too seriously. But don't you think there's something politically troubling about the fact? Like, didn't the ape with the two machine guns make you think about how gun control is in our country today and how like that could be a metaphor for uh, some of the ways that some people think about guns and you know how gun culture is glorified in this day and age i mean like that's one thing that i thought about i actually wasn't laughing at all and i didn't think that these battle sequences were fun as i said before i was dreading the violence that was a, i knew was coming and I know that it's monkeys on horsebacks with machine guns, and yes, that is pulpy, but it never felt like it changed tone for me. It felt dramatically relevant throughout. It felt like it maintained a consistent tone for me. Well, I, I agree with you that that's clearly the theme that the film is trying to uh, to convey. That whole idea that technology and guns in particular bring with them violence and, and, and suffering no matter whose hands they're in. And I do think that that theme is clearly communicated just in the scene when you have Koba grabbing a gun for the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying the execution of the ape on horseback with the machine guns kind of took me out of it. It was a little bit too over the top, and I'm not quite sure why. May I don't know if it's the technology. It wasn't slow motion. I don't it's because he it's... was packing two heat, man. <laughs> One gun Maybe in each hand, it. double. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but but see, it's it's it, again, Charlie. You said you didn't think that that was supposed to be like a really cool moment. I agree with you. Most of the the battle scene, I don't think we're supposed to feel like we're having a good time. But then you have the shots of of the ape on horseback with the machine guns, and suddenly I feel like the movie is trying to say, "Man, this is crazy. This is cool. Check out." But this it's awesome shot of a monkey with machine guns. It's supposed to show his dominance. He's obviously leading the charge. He is beyond question the leader of the pack at this point. There is no other monkey with another gun in his hand. I agree. I think if it wasn't Koba, Andrew, I feel like I might I might be agreeing with you, but the fact that it was Koba, as Monica just said, it's a character arc on top of that, and I feel like Like that's so out of control, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He just wants full-on violence, and then we see later on that he throws another one of the fellow apes over the 
railing because he doesn't follow him. It's all about power structure and loyalty. Like, who's with you and who's not with you? Those who are yeah. not with you are going to go in a cage. And on top of that, the ape that was thrown over the balcony was the same ape that was shot in the beginning. No, I thought that was the dad. Oh, I thought it was the same ape that got shot who, remember at the beginning, they're like, they no, shot my son. The yeah, they shot oh. my son. And Koba went back to the tribe and said, they shot Ash. And then the fact that he was like, humans are bad, they shot Ash. And then he throws Ash over the balcony at the end. That's a huge moment. I mean, Ash isn't the most developed ape of the bunch, but that... but Symbolically, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that detail. Moving away from the action for a bit, just to talk about the, these character arcs, I felt like, again, I I could see what they were going for, and I admired the attempt, but I don't think that they've quite fully pulled it off. I thought, like, Koba's transition from subservient to Caesar and willing to follow Caesar to suddenly... I'm going to, not only am I going to assassinate Caesar, I'm completely power hungry now, and I'm going to just completely uh, kill all the apes that don't agree with me or imprison them, and I'm a dictator now. I thought that that was, it, it felt really fast to me, and I didn't quite see that coming from his character. And I, I understand, yes, that's the theme of the film, that, yeah, apes are like humans, and it, it eventually leads to this. I just felt like it was a it was a bit rushed. But at the same time, he was in the first film too, and he was we saw him in the first film getting abused. So I I bought it. Yes, yeah, so I could understand why he would be angry at the humans and want war. I didn't quite see that transition though. To not only am I going to declare war on humans, I'm going to become an ape dictator and imprison the people that disagree with me, and I'm not going to be a good leader. Like I guess, I guess the, the with the buildup, if if you're going organically from what we saw in the first film and what we see in the first half of this film, I guess I would say that it, like if you asked me, ignoring you know Hollywood conventions and whatnot, what's going to happen to Koba in the second half of the film? I would probably have said, oh, he's probably going to betray Caesar and then he's going to declare war on humans. I would not have said he's going to become an, an, a, a dictator and mistreat his fellow apes. Because I, I didn't quite see that in his character until it happened. Does that make sense? So the plot surprised you? <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> no. yeah, that's why, it, that's, that's, that's exactly what made it work for me. It's funny that you should mention that, Andrew, because that's exactly what, well, so that's what made it work was, for me. was, you know, Caesar's number two for so long and then finally decides, I had enough of this. I'm going to have it all on my own. I guess what I'm saying is the motivation that he was, that he wanted to declare war with the humans came through. His motivation to seek power, uh, not just power, but power. The only way power. he could get through the humans is if he got that power, because Caesar wasn't going to move. No, 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 I agree. I agree. But, but then to go from that to, I'm going to imprison the apes that disagree with me and become this maniacal, power-hungry dictator, and, and yeah, I'm going to throw Ash off the balcony. Do you know how dictatorships work? Well, that's what I'm saying. That transition, I think, was rushed. No, I totally got it. I'm saying. I don't think that they no. set the seeds for that. It's two hours and ten minutes, Andrew. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I agree with you, Monica. I, I didn't mean, think it was hey, rushed. Maybe, maybe I've been spoiled by television. Yeah, sorry, you know, we don't have three seasons to get to this. Time with, a, with a lot of these arcs. <laughs> you know? No, I'm serious. Maybe that's a problem now. Maybe we don't have an entire season to get to V. <laughs> <laughs> nice right. reference. Or yeah, he can't become Walter White in two hours. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's not. We're not gonna have the Walter White transformation of him in five seasons of television. But but even other character stuff. Like, did anything with Blue Eyes work for you at all? Because that stuff just really f didn't land for me much. Everything with Caesar and his son just didn't work and and what was the overall arc for that like the the opening scene gives you the impression that blue eyes wants to be treated like a like an adult and that never quite happens in the film and i yeah he he later goes through this journey of oh i trusted koba and then i shouldn't have and i'm sorry but that is that just felt so cliche and so broad to me. I just felt like that was a really, really rushed... Hard to please, man. Also, how many character arcs are you expected to execute in a single movie? Well, let's count the character arcs here. There's a character arc with Caesar, and that mostly works. Sure. There's a character arc with Koba mm -hmm. that, yeah, I guess I could go with. And that's really it. 
Honestly, like they, they try for some development and arcs with other characters, but they just really did not land for me. See, I got blue eyes is that he's he wants to be an adult and he's trying to prove himself. Obviously, he's got a lot to shoulder because his dad is the leader of the group. And his thing is that he got put back in his place because he trusted the wrong person, that he should have listened to his father more. Yeah, and he got injured in the beginning because he didn't listen to his father, and then he saw he wanted his moment to shine. He felt like he was being pushed back, but then after he sees Koba get his moment and becomes so power-hungry yeah. and malicious and, you know, selfish, he learns that you know, he's going to be there for his father and then he comes back and takes care of him. And he's actually does get his moment to shine because he helps every other ape. I feel like he did get his moment. It might have been more of a subplot. It might not have been as highlighted as other arcs of the film, but I feel like it worked. I feel like there were a lot of missed opportunities in that final battle for some actual character development and character moments. Like, I was kind of expecting and kind of thinking it would be nice that... What if, for the final battle, what if Caesar's like, yeah, I was shot, I'm too weak, you say that I can trust you and you're a man now, you go kill Koba, Blue Eyes. I was thinking maybe that would happen. No, no, Caesar's <laughs> got something to prove. Now he's the one that has to take okay. the throne well, then in back. the final battle, I'll tell you another thing I was kind of expecting and thinking might be a nice parallel. I was thinking that they might visually do a parallel to the opening scene when Koba leaped off the... Uh, the rock and, and killed the the uh, bear. I was thinking that suddenly that they, they, they might do something similar to that, where blue they eyes kinda and did. Uh, Caesar kind of team up and they kind of help each other surprise Koba and and defeat him. No, I don't think you understand how that whole society works. Is that the de- dominant male actually has to dominate? No one else can like be second. Otherwise, it's a sign of weakness. Well, that's true, and that happens in the battle to a certain extent but then there's a point later on where after the bomb blows up and everything's just kind of crazy when like koba grabs a gun and starts firing and suddenly it's like well all bets are off we can fight dirty now you know and i was that's when i was kind of expecting well hey maybe blue eyes will actually get a moment and they never did anything with that so you had expectations that weren't met is that what i'm hearing that's what i'm saying and I think my expectations okay. were made for better film. And, and also, well, and also, I don't think so. I really don't. That's like you just want to write the film. Yeah, basically, is what I'm pointing out basically, to you. I, I do kind of want to write the film because I, <laughs> I right. missed several opportunities. All right. Well, I'll let the WGA know. <laughs> and also, I got to say, the final moment with Koba, I hated. Absolutely hated. You didn't like the Mufasa point. Exactly. I was thinking the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Except Mufasa doesn't die and instead enacts in rage, um, revenge on Scar. Yeah. And yo, Scarface, by the way. (laughs) I could tell what they were going for with the, you are no ape. You know, like you're somehow, you're, you're lower than apes and humans. Apes and humans have commonalities and, and we have the same soul to a certain extent and you're not one of us you're somehow inhuman or you're you're not a real ape spiritually speaking and i just thought that that was a really silly line and it really didn't land i got it the fact that he chooses to kill koba just felt like such a he had become so power hungry it corrupted him no sure sure but i'm saying he could see no other thing than anger but here's the thing though monica the whole movie we feel like there needs to be peace, there needs to be peace, and there's this constant drive towards war, and you have this whole betrayal of the ape idea that apes shall not kill apes. And in Caesar, we supposedly have the counter to that idea, the idea that, well, maybe apes are better than humans to a certain extent, and therefore it's okay if we ultimately take over the planet and have a planet of the apes. So what would happen? Koba would go to maximum? I found myself thinking, well, how how radical would it have been if instead of throwing him off kept the as a prisoner scaffold, for life? he well no, he held he held out his hand for forgiveness, like as is the common gesture where Koba would have to scratch his paw or whatever it is they do to indicate yes, I concede and then Caesar lets him live as long as he concedes defeat. Yeah, but we already saw that he did that and he lied. Well, I agree and I'm saying I'm saying whatever. They could find a way to discipline Koba. Oh my lord. <laughs> they could find a way to they could find a way to do whatever with him. But I'm saying if if they had chosen not to kill Koba, 
Mm-hmm. Not only does that differentiate Caesar from Koba by choosing by showing that he's not going to murder his fellow ape, even though this ape fully deserves it. Like if anybody deserves to die. So I'm like wondering, so you're going to let him back in so he can kill more apes in his quest for revenge? Like We don't know that because honestly, Koba, you you figure... No, you can't trust Koba. That's the thing. He's maniacal. (laughs) He threw... But there is a brief shot of him contemplating whether or not to bring him up. And I feel like that we, we, through that subtle moment though, I felt like we were going through that pain with, um, with Caesar of do you, you know, cause yeah. part of us did want him to bring in, him up. And then another part of him did want us, did want to drop him. And I feel like they convey that if Caesar was just like throwing him off, then yeah, I see what you're getting at here. But I feel like there is that brief three to five second moment where Caesar debates it. And it's, it, it makes it different than like just killing off the bad guy because you need to, I feel like that he did have a bit of a conflict. No, I agree with you there. He's clearly has a conflict, but he makes the wrong choice okay. is what I'm saying. So next time y'all just hand the script over to Andrew and he'll take it from here. It's like, do the right thing, Andrew. He does the wrong thing for the right reasons. Well, no, no, look, look, the whole film, is about how, oh no, the apes are becoming like humans, the apes are becoming like humans, war is bad, all of this violence is bad, why why are we fighting each other, why are we murdering each other? And then when Caesar ultimately gives in to that with Koba at the end, I was so disappointed. Right, he brings in capital punishment. What are you doing, Caesar? (laughs) Yeah, and I was thinking, no, Caesar, you're betraying this whole idea of the society you set up. You're you're letting Koba win, essentially. You're letting Koba corrupt the ideals of this society. And you're saying, well, yeah, I guess it is okay for apes to kill other apes. You do know that the society that then forms is also corrupt. We saw that in the first Planet of the Apes. I agree. I Many agree. But I, think, but I think it would have been interesting if they led to that, if they transitioned into that with the idea that, hey, look, apes are better than humans. Caesar chose not to kill Koba. Caesar was merciful apes we maybe we don't have to go to war maybe we can be better and maybe that's why we deserve to rule the planet because maybe we can be better i think that would have been a far more interesting way to transition into the extinction of humanity and suddenly there's a there is more corruption and and all that than just oh well i guess koba's right and i guess we can kill apes now because if we just say you're not an ape then it's okay thematically i thought like the film was kind of Undermining you itself. see, you're concerned about the legislative repercussions of this decision. <laughs> I, I just feel like we've seen so many movies where the villain dies like this that the fact that it was yeah, done so well I'm here. I'm tired of it. I'm tired yeah, but it's of done it. well here. It's 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 really it. There's more attention to detail with this sequence than I feel like there is for a lot of other films, especially aimed at kids. Disney movies in particular, I feel like a lot of Disney villains die like this, and there isn't as much detail. Well, right. It's hypocritical. It's hypocritical because so many movies that, that have this idea that oh, violence is bad, except in certain situations. And here's a movie in which, for most of the film. It's saying, no, guys, war's always wrong. No matter who is fighting it, no matter what your point of view is, this violence is bad. This is not good, guys. It doesn't matter what your motivations are. This is not the right course of action to take as a a species, regardless of whether or not you're human or or ape. So then when it finally does give in to that cliche of, oh, well, I guess you're bad, so it is okay to kill you, I was just so disappointed. I felt like it was being such so hypocritical and, and undermining itself there in that final scene. I don't think it's as black and white. I can see other... I've seen other films where they make it more black and white, but I honestly, even when Koba died, it wasn't like me and my audience were cheering on for the death of Koba. I even felt a little sting. And I feel like there are movies where it is done in black and white, like the villain deserved to die and, you know, it's okay. But I don't feel like they were just passing that off. There was... Not to get back to this, but there was that moment where he was debating pulling him up, and I feel like that justified it enough. And I feel like Caesar wasn't proud of himself for doing it. It wasn't like all the apes applauded for him after that. Sure, it kind of is like The Lion King. We've seen this before, but it's done so well that I just, I I didn't mind it. I totally bought it. Okay, that's fine. I I just feel like thematically it was a step back. And like I said, I, I, I do think there are good ideas in this film, and I... I think especially that idea that humans and apes are now exactly alike. I think that idea is communicated really, really well. But all the other ideas, I think they just they, they flirt with being really interesting and then they're they're kind they kinda of back off. 
and it seems like the filmmakers were afraid to really do anything too radical or, or, or too unpredictable here when it comes to the story. Well, what did you think of the first film, Andrew? Because I know that you liked the first film, right? But I feel like this film is is much more ambitious and much more ethically interesting and morally interesting than the first film, which I feel like kind of made humans just all of them, except for James Franco, Frida Pinto, uh, were disgusting monsters who just had nothing better to do than to torture apes like they were Sid in Toy Story or something. You know, like, I, I just feel like this film has a lot more on its mind than the first film, which I liked. It was fine. It didn't give me a lot much more to think about, as much to think about as this film did. And I don't think it has the emotional depth that this film does. I agree with you to a certain extent. I, I think that Rise of the Planet of the Apes is a more complex film on a narrative level, and Dawn is trying to be more complex on a thematic level and an ethical and moral level. The problem is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is so narratively simple and broad that it can't quite really capture the, that, that thematic nuance that I think it wants to get at. So I think that the, the script kind of lets down these themes that it's trying to explore. It's a bit too simple, just narratively, in, in terms of how the plot is structured, to really explore these issues with a lot of nuance. And I think that that's really the big problem here, is that there's this conflict between the, the simple narrative and the more complex themes and ideas that it wants to get at. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I see where you're coming from, but I, I have to say I think that the first film is a lot more simple in terms of its plot than this film. I do see where you're coming from, but I, I, I just feel like this film has a lot more to offer and has a lot more... Uh, it brings a lot more to the table, I think, than the first film. And, and even even the action, and even, even on a superficial level when it comes to summer blockbusters, like the action sequences I thought were better in this one, the technology's better than uh, uh, the characters, even the human characters. I'm surprised that you didn't have a problem with the human characters getting fleshed out because if there's one complaint that I have, it oh, is that the humans are still kind of bland. I feel like... Jason Clark is really good at portraying this protagonist, but I also think that just shows how good Jason Clark is as an actor. He was also uh, one of my favorite actors in um, Zero Dark Thirty. I thought he was tremendous in that film. He gave a lot of subtle nuance to a character that could have been really despicable. I wish we got a little more of Carrie Russell. I mean, we get some plot details, but if there's one complaint that I have about this film, I wish that the female characters, even female apes, got a little more to do. And I know that, um, you know, I didn't even remember that Judy Greer played Caesar's wife. And I know that she's sick for most of the movie, but I wish that if there was one thing that it could have delved deeper into, it could have been like, hey, female apes uh, have a, you know, yeah. big role in society too. I know that, you know, apes are, you know, primal, they have primal instincts and they're animals. And, you know, obviously the male's going to be more dominant scientifically or whatever, but I feel yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, but women also have a role in the community as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and here they're basically non-existent. Yeah, I wish that, you know, and I wish, why couldn't Carrie Russell get in on the action? Why couldn't she... She's the healer. Yeah, exactly, which I liked, but... You know, that is a little stereotypical where men, you know, go out to battle and women stay and, you know, take care of the kids and, you know, deal with medicine. And Carrie Russell is a phenomenal actress. I mean, ever since I saw her in Waitress uh, several years ago, I think that she's oh, just yeah. very talented. So that was my one complaint is that I feel like the humans still aren't that interesting. Oh, I agree with you completely. The humans really aren't interesting at all. And I think that is one area in which Rise is a superior film. I, I do think that the James Franco character in Rise of the Planet of the Apes is <laughs> fairly complex. And I think that that movie... See, and I thought Rise suffered because of James Franco. Well, I, th I think that that movie does a much better job overall of balancing its subplots and just crafting an arc for most of them, whether it's everything with James Franco and his father or James Franco and his own ego or the way that his relationship with Caesar kind of twists and turns... Uh, I, I think that all the different subplots are handled much, much better in that film, which is why I say that it's a far more narratively, I think, successful film than Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which which is trying to be more thematically uh, interesting. Can we, can we just come... Is it too much to ask to combine them both and, and to say, hey, can we get a movie that's narratively 
complex and is going to actually have some fairly developed characters and, and, and arcs. Hey, there's always a sequel. <laughs> I, I guess so. I, I feel like Rise of the Planet of the Apes was so predictable, though, that it didn't feel as complex to me. I felt like it was way less predictable than this one. Really? This one, yeah, this one is so, it's so archetypal. It's, it's, it's Shakespearean with all of the betrayal that's going on. And, it, it, you know, if the characters had been developed more and, and, and the characters had felt more like three-dimensional individuals and had been more interesting, I think that could have worked. But without the really interesting characters, it just, it just, it feels kind of cliche. See, I don't think that the characters in Rise of the Planet of the Apes were that much more, I think the characters in this film, even the human characters in this film are more interesting. I mean, what did Frida Pinto do in the first film? She stood around and looked concerned and was sad whenever James Franco informed her of, you know, certain information. She was, you know, she wasn't even a character. She was just something to decorate the scenery and, you know, convey emotions uh, that we already could feel from everything else going on in the movie. I don't really think that it explored you know, it, it Rise of the Planet of the Apes was Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. It's basically the same film. It, it's kind of like Escape from the Planet of the Apes and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes combined, where we knew from the advertising that the apes were going to rebel, that the humans were going to be bad. And here, as we mentioned, I didn't know that Koba was going to start the war. I thought Gary Oldman was going to. I liked, as Monica pointed out earlier, that the apes are the ones who initiated it. That made it much more complex and interesting as opposed to, you know, humans just going, they're animals, let's kill them. And then just, you know, apes, you know, are clearly misunderstood because it makes the characters much more human. I think that the, the char- both sides of characters are much more interesting in this film than the first one. That's just... I, I, I think that the apes are overall more successfully developed in this film, but the humans, oh my God, they're so, so boring. Again, they touch on arcs that they never follow up on like everything with jason clark and his son that went nowhere the idea that oh his his son is withdrawn and oh he just likes this comic book oh but he made which is a great comic book (laughs) i'm sorry that uh, (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry it's just that ape that black hole is a great graphic novel but it's also a very complex graphic novel about stds and puberty and i was just like oh my god that ape is gonna like that that ape is gonna learn about so many things that are gonna go so over its head (laughs) like but i mean i know that's such a side topic but anyway i well that's the thing is that there's that scene where he teaches maurice to read the graphic novel or whatever and then that's the end of it and i was like what that's you that's wanted really more all what? you're gonna do with his There's character a friendship that's why maurice tells him that get going when things go wrong yeah and even i know you've mentioned that it's bleak andrew but there's so many small moments of joy i mean it might not be comic relief but there were moments that made me uplifted in very small ways the scene where he reads the graphic novel to maurice the scene where the baby is born in the beginning, the scene where the baby's crawling all over Carrie Russell. I mean, I genuinely smiled and kind of, you know, was on the verge of snickering and out of joy. I know it's a very bleak, dark baby film. monkeys. Yeah, I know. And that's another thing that I, I so bought that technology, that baby monkey. I want that baby monkey so bad. <laughs> I want it so bad, Andrew. <laughs> I, I don't know. There were just, there were, again, I, I, I thought the film was fine. I thought it was a, a decent movie, but there were too many moments where I felt like it was either trying to rush through things or bringing up certain character moments it never would deliver on or characters would seem to behave a little bit unrealistically. I'll tell you the moment when it comes to just reactions of characters that irritated me the most is the scene when the human colony first sees the apes riding on their horses to meet them at the in the first act of the film and the fact that nobody no none of the humans no one stands up and goes what the hell is going on <laughs> why is there an ape riding a horse really bothered me like they just kind of stand there like oh man like like they, they, like you could tell they were they were going for uh oh no we have apes on horses that might attack whereas i feel like if that happened in real life people wouldn't be worried about the apes attacking as much as they'd just be like what is happening they totally had spears with them come on 
Yeah, Andrew, so you're telling me that during this monologue that where Caesar goes, apes do not want war, you want one idiot to come out of the crowd and be like, how do you know how to ride a horse? Like, <laughs> no, no one I'm saying cares. When, they first, <laughs> when they first see the apes approaching, I, I guess I just, I Other wanted... Other than screams? Instead of it, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a one kid whispered it and you missed it. Instead of the sense of just fear... I, I felt like that should have been combined with a sense of just pure confusion <laughs> and disbelief. I think that that's what was missing. The, just the overall sense of disbelief and awe that what the hell is happening here? <laughs> I think that was, I don't know. It's been years since people have even seen apes, Andrew. I mean, they, they can just right. put the pieces together. Okay, I don't care who you are, Charlie. If you saw a chimpanzee holding a spear, riding a horse, yes, you'd probably be afraid. But above all, you'd probably just be confused and <laughs> and like, what the hell is this? No, I'd be scared. I would run. <laughs> Again, the movie is so cons- is so tonally serious and bleak that it can't. It it doesn't even seem to 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 consider well we could show confusion or we could show awe or we could show anything other than than fear and 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 dread i don't know it was again it's a small moment but one that i felt like wasn't realistic and didn't capture the full tonal range that it could have is what i'm saying i think you're being nitpicky I, yeah, oh no, I'll, I'll fully admit that's a nitpick. I mean, I, that's to- totally a nitpick. But as I was watching it in the theater, I was just thinking, how are people not more in an uproar about this? How are people not just like freaking out as opposed to just being af- afraid? I don't know. I, I feel like if you saw an ape with a spear on a horse, you'd be afraid, yes, but then you'd also just start to question your very existence and your perceptions of the world. That seems like an internal dialogue, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a little thought bubble comes up above their heads. I, no, I, I, think, <laughs> I, think it, I think you'd look at your neighbor and you'd both just kind of be, be like, what is happening? Like, you do you see what I'm seeing? Maybe they watched the original series before the world died. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was lacking the big laser beam that was knocking people out. Yeah. All right. Overall, I I did enjoy the film. I think it's a fine summer movie. It's it's. I just don't think it's doing anything. Okay. Yeah. As long as you're laughing too. Look, it's a fine movie. I enjoyed myself. I just don't think it does anything really particularly groundbreaking or anything that makes me go, "Wow, that movie was just mm, that was just firing on all cylinders." I, I I there were some definite missteps along the way that I think keep it from reaching its full potential. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it too. I mean, it's not a perfect film, but in comparison to a lot of other summer blockbusters we've got this year, like, I mean, I thought Godzilla was a guilty pleasure, but, you know, had a massive yeah, amount of problems. Yeah, what are you going to see, sex tape? Yeah. <laughs> I, I liked um, this much, you know, I thought X-Men, same thing, fun film, but a lot of flaws. Maleficent, I didn't enjoy that much, despite some feminist politics here and there. I just think that in terms of summer blockbusters that have come out this year, and even last year, I think this is a really solid effort. Oh, I will agree with you there. In terms of summer blockbusters that have come out this year, this is definitely one of the better ones. I just don't think it's it's a particularly great movie. I mean, sure, when you compare it to other, a lot of the other stuff we get, yeah, but if the state of blockbuster cinema was better, I feel like people wouldn't be making quite as much of a big deal about this film. Mm. I don't know. If it wasn't coming out the same month as Transformers 4. Oh, God. Maybe people, I don't know. That's another thing, too. This is another thing I wanted to bring up. It's funny that this year I feel like we've gotten some of the best sequels in years, like this, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and The Raid 2, and then we've gotten some of the worst sequels in recent years, like The Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Transformers 4, which were just abysmal on every level. Spider-Man 2 wasn't that bad. But oh, continue God, on. Andrew. <laughs> All right, boys, break it up. This isn't the movie we're fighting over. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, do either of you have anything else you want to say about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? No, I'm pretty aped out. I think we've gone pretty bananas over this. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. 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 <laughs> 
All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes here on Cinema Fix. Please uh, write in. Let us know. What did you think of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Do you agree with uh, Charlie and Monica that this is one of the best sequels in a long time? Do you agree with me and say, oh, it's pretty good, but it's not great? Or do you are you completely against this film and say, no, this movie is awful and, and you're all wrong? Uh, write in and let us know. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. If you'd also like to financially support us, you can visit the support tab uh, on the at filmgeekradio.com or visit our affiliates page uh, and check out some of our partners, including Amazon. Anything you purchase off of Amazon, if you uh, use our website to get there, we will get a small percentage of whatever you purchase. So you can buy something cool for yourself and help us out at the same time. Uh, and don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including uh, The Tupperware Party, our latest podcast, which is all about the HBO series The Leftovers. Charlie, where can people find you online? You can find the work that I've written for Edge Media on edgeonthenet.com, as well as the work that I've written for Movie Mezzanine on moviemezzanine.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ctnash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H 91. And uh, thanks for having me back, you guys. It was a lot of fun. I feel like even though we we, uh, we had some disagreements here, Charlie, it wasn't quite as pronounced as when we had you on for Carrie. So that's... that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty heated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, and Letterboxd at MCastiMovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I Movies. I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at MovieMezzanine.com, and you can find me co-hosting a couple other podcasts over at FilmGeekRadio.com, including the Tupperware Party. And uh, be sure to follow me on Twitter and letterboxed at writer Andrew. If you do follow me, send me a message, let me know you're a listener, so I can follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun with you eating a banana. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!